Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today's a minor milestone for Econ Talk. We've just passed our one-year anniversary, and I want to thank all our guests and listeners for making this as much fun as it is. Starting last June, we decided to do this every week, so we've now done over 40. We've had a wide variety of guests in that year. Some have been Nobel laureates talking about their research. Sometimes we're talking basic economics. Sometimes I'm interviewing authors about the ideas in their books. Today, I'm interviewing a journalist. We've talked about growth, health, sports, parenting. We've tried a little bit of everything. I'd like to hear from you as we enter our second year. What were your five favorite podcasts, your five least favorite? Do you want more basic economics, more cutting-edge research? Do you like the mix of styles and guests? Please write us at mail at econtalk.org and let us know. My guest today is David Leonhardt, who writes an economics and business column for The New York Times. David, welcome to EconTalk. Thanks. It's good to be here. David, you've done a lot of different stuff at The Times. You you have a... uh, You have a weekly column now, and you've also been a general reporter. I think a lot of people have a very romantic idea about what reporting is like at the world's greatest newspaper. Can you give us a little insight of what it's really like? Romantic is a nice word, particularly when you look at those surveys of how people hold various professions in esteem, and and reporters are down there with lawyers. So I'll take romantic, (laughs) definitely. It harkens back to those old good movie days. Yeah. Well, the first thing I'd say is those movies, um, in terms of the physical locale, those movies get it exactly right. I mean, if you go back and watch All the President's Men, that's what a newsroom looks like. Um, it's what it still looks like. The New York Times is actually uh, later this year going to be moving into a new building, um, so I think we'll get modernized slightly. But in the in the in the grand scheme of things, it's still going to be those series of cubicles and open desks. Um, I, I, maybe I'll, I'll start with just briefly telling you um, what I've done, so to give listeners a sense of the sorts of reporting I've done and the sorts I haven't done. Um, I started actually down at the Washington Post after college on the Metro desk and did a. Uh, a combination of pretty typical um, early journalism stuff. I covered some murder trials. I covered school boards. Um, and then I, I always had an interest in economics and business, and I, and I got into it down there by writing about the new stadiums that were being built. First, the arena uh, for the for what were then the Bullets and now the Washington Wizards basketball team. Did you write about how many jobs were going to be created? I mainly had a good time poking fun at the absolutely ridiculous statements that are made with these things in which they they talk about how they're going to generate millions and millions of dollars in revenue. And the, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners are aware, I mean, the core problem with that is that they assume it's all new economic activity. They assume that if they build a stadium and people go there, they, they otherwise would have been at home squirreling, squirreling their cash under underneath their bed, which, of yeah. course, isn't true. Lying motionless. Exactly. <laughs> um, uh, and then I did, I, I wrote some of some similar stories about the um, the new Redskins stadium. Um and after some time at the Post, I, I went to Business Week for four years, um, two years in New York and two years in Chicago. That's actually when you and I met when yeah, I was working sure. on the ranking project for business schools. And then I came to the Times in, in 1999. Um, so I, I've had some experience um, 
doing the the cops and courts sorts of things that are really the core of daily journalism, but I haven't had as much experience as, as most people. Um, the, the sorts of stuff I've done are almost more of a combination of, of what we think of as magazine journalism and newspaper journalism. And that is where newspapers are moving. I mean, we don't um, anymore really tell people as much about um, what happened yesterday. Um, we still do, but in many cases they already know. I mean, the purest example of this is probably sports, in which people don't rely on their daily newspaper to tell them who won last night as much as they did in the 1940s by any stretch. And I think by the time a lot of people got their New York Times this morning, they knew Scooter Libby had been, had been convicted. And so our job is is to move more toward putting things in context and to report news, but also to report it in a way that someone who already knows the two-sentence summary still wants to read. And so it's, it's, it's a lot of what you would imagine. It's a lot of time on the phone talking to people. It's a lot of time going out and, and meeting people in person. I still just have absolutely no doubt that, that conversations that you have with people in person um, are, are richer than ones you can have on the phone even though I'm an enormous fan of radio. Um, uh, I think it makes a big difference, even if you meet someone just a few times. I think the, the phone conversations you have with them after that are, are much richer. Oh, sure. The and facial expressions and credibility issues are obviously very different face-to-face. That's right. That's right. What, and, what I'm interested in is talk for a minute about the the decision about what runs on what page. I think that's of the part where the romance comes in. I think a lot of people have this idea that that you guys sit around every day and decide, you know, you're not wearing togas probably, but there's sort of this image of, of, um, you know, what should we write on? But it's a fairly competitive process in a certain way, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, and who makes those decisions? How do they get made? Obviously, they're not easily described, but give us a flight, little bit of the flavor for how a story gets decided and, and where it ends up and its length and those kind of things. Absolutely. So there are two key meetings a day to deal with that. One is um, late morning, essentially, in which um, the the very top editors of the newspaper, Bill Keller runs the New York Times, and there are two managing editors, Jill Abramson and John Geddes, um, as well as a number of their key, key deputies, people who are responsible for keeping the, the coverage of the day moving, have a meeting in which they basically bring together all the department heads. So the head of national and business and foreign and metro and sports and science and education and, um, and arts and, and a number of other areas. And um, they come together and, and the department heads essentially describe at this what's what's called the noon meeting, even if it always doesn't happen at exactly noon, describe what their stories are. And that first meeting is, is really a mix of things. It's it's a mix of three things. One, news that's already happened, for example, overseas, because in Europe, for example, it's already it's already evening at that point. Um, two, news that we know is going to happen later. So that noon meeting on the day of the State of the Union address will obviously be dominated by the State of the Union, um, even though it hasn't happened yet. That may not be the best example, because by noon on the day of the State of the Union, we know what it's going to say. But, but even something that like a presidential debate, when we don't know what it's going to be at that noon meeting, they'll talk about how um, we're going to cover it. And then the third thing are, are the third thing are stories that, that I think of them as the bottom half of the front page stories. Right. And it's not quite that clear a divide. But if you look at the New York Times on a typical day, the top half is often things that is dominated by things that happened yesterday. 
and the bottom half is dominated by trend stories and features and, and, and analytical pieces. And, and so by noon, they basically know what all those are. In fact, many of them have been in the system for days. Right. People have been working on them, obviously, for, for a long time. That's right. Um, and so, so they sketch out what their offerings are going to be for the front page, and they, they make pitches. They say, here's why we think this is a front page story. Here's why we think you should consider it. Um, they've also submitted summaries of those stories in writing beforehand, so the top editors are looking at those summaries while they're, they're listening to, to the pitches. Um, and um, then they do it again um, late in the afternoon. 435. And um, obviously at that point, they know a lot more about what's going on. Um, they know a lot more about how stories that they'd hoped to have together um, are actually coming together because some of those features and trend stories I mentioned are, are not things that you're always sure you're going to have for that day. Maybe you need to get a document that you haven't gotten. Um, and then after that second meeting, the, the top editors sit down and they um, make decisions about what stories are going to go on the front, what's going to lead the paper, the story at the top right of the paper. Um, and um, uh, and then they go back and an email goes out um, announcing what those those stories are. And, and a news story that doesn't make the front um, is still going to run that day. It's often going to run on the front of another section. So after that, after that meeting, the heads of the sections design their section front. But features often hold the day, particularly if the editors say, hey, we like this. Um, but we just didn't have room for it. Um, the department will hold it and, and, and hope to get it back on the, the front page another day. Um, well, you, you spoke earlier about how the world has changed and how the what happened yesterday part of the paper is is shrinking to some extent. Obviously, the Times sees itself correctly in most cases as the paper of record. So there's a certain minimum level of stuff that you guys are going to cover because it's, quote, important. Right. Uh, but the Internet and the speed of information, cable television, has changed uh, that front section uh, and, I, and the rest of the paper as well to be more interpretive, more feature-oriented, more magazine-ish, uh, I, would, I would guess, as you said earlier. Is, is that correct? Is, yeah. is it mainly the Internet? And do you think – is it, cha- it going to keep changing? What do you think is going to happen over the next five years in the newspaper business? I, I would – I would say the Internet is now the main force, but if, if you were to look at it historically, it, it still hasn't had as big an impact as, as radio and TV did. Um, I mean, if you, the, you know, there's, the paper changed much, much more between, say, 1950 and 1990 than it has from 1990 to 2007. And, and so um, what this was really about was television becoming... Um, an incredibly important medium for information in this society. Um, and now the Internet is obviously making that happen even more because you can essentially get, on our website and many others, you can get what, what is newspaper's main product, words, pictures, graphics. Um, data. Data, not just at 8 in the morning, but you can get it throughout the day. And um, I think that is going to keep changing what we do. I mean, I, for example, that meet, those meetings I described, they now spend time talking about what's at the top of the web page, as they should. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. and, and, I, and I think if you, if you look at our website, you, you see, for example, um, uh, we cover breaking news throughout the day. So we had stories up about Scooter Libby's conviction with very shortly after it happened. Um, but we still put the vast, vast majority of our material 
the print schedule. Right. Um, and my and I think you'll see us taking baby steps away from that. I mean, um, why not put more information on at three o'clock and four o'clock and five o'clock? There are a number of reasons to do it. One, we have enormous traffic on our website throughout the day. I mean, it it does it is heavier at the times you would expect. It's really heavy in the morning, and it's not as heavy at at one in the morning. It's much heavier at ten in the morning. But we have huge traffic really around the clock, in part because we draw readers from around the world. And so given that, it makes sense to, to give people new material um, really throughout the day. And it also makes sense not to bury some of the really good stuff we do under the avalanche material that, that we're putting out on the Internet at, at, at 10, 11 p.m. Eastern time. Well, one thing I've noticed that is partly the result of the Internet and partly just a result of just the general explosion of information in the TV world that we've talked about already is the tailoring of information to people's tastes, obviously. Uh, obviously, if you're fascinated by food, you can watch the Food Channel, you can buy a food magazine, you can get the food section the day it comes out in the paper when it's highlighted. But the other issue that comes up is ideology and, and political partisanship. And it's a sensitive topic for journalists. Journalists um, have a code of balance and, and, and objectivity. But as an outside observer, it seems pretty clear to me that, that the world is partitioning very narrowly toward what people uh, would call their biases. People with certain po- politics read certain papers, watch certain television channels, and in my experience as a blogger, they find blogs they like. Now, there are blogs that, that have people on both sides, just like there are newspapers that, and TV shows that have people watching them from a wide array of, of the political spectrum. But it seems to me that the that the narrowing of that is is what's happening. That that people that media outlets are specializing more and more in catering to people with a particular outlook, a particular uh, bias. Uh, they don't always claim that's true. They frequently claim the opposite. Uh, but that seems to be happening. Do you think that's true? I think it is true. Absolutely. I also think that. We still have the ability to be something, not entirely, but something of an exception to that. And I I am well aware that because of what our home city is and because we have circulation uh, in big cities across the country, that our readership is by no means a a random sample of um, political opinions in this country. Obviously, our readers would skew more liberal than the country would as a whole. Um, And, you know, it's sort of an interesting philosophical question of does our op-ed page skew more liberal because our readers do, or do our readers skew more liberal because our op-ed page Hmm. does? And I I don't really know the answer to that. I mean, my guess is that that the real real cause of of sort of both is is much more the words New York um, in our in economics, we call that a simultaneity bias, right? A okay. simultaneity problem. Obviously, causation can run both directions. It might be hard statistically to disentangle it, but they're both factors are working in each direction. There's no doubt that's, about it. That's right. Um, and so, you know, to some extent, um, we, you know, if you if you were to look at our op-ed page, for example, you know, I, I think, um, uh, you know, there's no question that the, the that we have more liberal op-ed columnists 
than conservative ones. Right. Um, no question about that. And there's no question that the unsigned editorials um, that the newspaper runs are quite liberal. Um, and in the same way, I would imagine uh, that uh, that if if Al Gore and George Bush were at a statistical tie in 2000, that people who read the New York Times would have voted more of them would have voted for Al Gore than George Bush. I think that's true. Um, so I so I don't I don't pretend otherwise by any means. Um, on the other hand, and, and by the way, the flip side would be true of the Wall Street Journal to take a to take a, a counter. Point on the other side, right? The Wall Street Journal's editorial page is consistently more conservative, both in its unsigned editorials and in its offerings from its contributors. Absolutely, um, and I actually think that's a really nice segue into to the other hand, which is, you know, uh, on the other hand, um, the the op-ed page, although it's very high profile. Um, both here and at the journal. It's a relatively small piece of what each of us does. And I, I think inside journalism, we fool ourselves a little bit into thinking that that um, the op-ed page is as separate in our readers' minds as it is in our minds, and I'm well aware that it's not. Chinese wall, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm well aware that even though these are, the, our op-ed page and our news department have two different bosses. They, they aren't part of the same chain of command. Um, they report to different people. Uh, I'm, I'm 99% sure that that is true at the Wall Street Journal as well. Um, and um, uh, and so they really are different. But but uh, but I understand that in the end they, they are part of the same physical product and they're part of the same company. And, and um, but, but they're interesting examples because the news sections of the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, in, in terms of what you might describe as their outlook, are actually really quite similar. I mean, they are far, far more similar to each other than either of them is to their respective editorial pages. And um, and and I think that that is part of the point of how both us and I'm quite confident the journal want to be an exception to this narrowing. The, the narrowing is, is going to happen, and we can't prevent it from happening, and it has advantages and disadvantages. But... but a lot of the blogs that you mention and a lot of the television shows that you mention still rely on sources of news that are not free of bias, but that make a very serious attempt to put aside their biases and to cover events and to analyze events, um, not from a partisan perspective. And I think that the... Um, but it's funny, partisan is a dirty word. I, I don't I actually don't think of it as such a bad thing in, in the grand scheme of things. You want people having serious arguments about ideas. But you also want them relying on some source of information that is not merely partisan. And I actually don't think the demand for that is going to go away. I think to some extent, sources like um, the news sections of national newspapers are the oxygen that some of these political debates live on. I think that's true, and I think some of the... Uh grandiose claims about the blogosphere, which I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic to them, but, but they, they do neglect the fact that a lot of what's driving the blogosphere is traditional news coverage that the blogosphere is, is leveraging and enjoying and poking fun at and criticizing and enhancing. That's right. I mean, uh, I, an interesting example of that is, you know, as you're probably aware, we took enormous heat from the left side of the blogosphere for our delay in reporting the wiretapping story. 
the fact that we did not report it um, until we really felt like we had it nailed. We did not report it for many months after we first knew about it. Now, we took heat from the right side for reporting it at all. But, but it, you know, my, my reaction to the criticism from the left side, and I had no role in our wiretapping coverage, was, hey, if you thought we didn't break the news fast enough, go break it yourself. I mean, no one, we didn't, we weren't a censor who prevented you from breaking it. Right. Um, and, um, and that sounds a little pugnacious, but, um, but m- my point is that we're not going to stop people from commenting on news, but we're also going to report it only when we feel, when we feel comfortable reporting it. Now, I, I think the deep question, and I, I, don't, I don't expect you to react to this, so you're welcome to, is that the subtle influences that we all face on the job and in life, the incentives we face, and um, my, my feeling is, is that the, the news media, because of those incentives, are going to be pushed away from objectivity. But as you say, not in every dimension. Certainly, in the news dimension, uh, there's going to be some objectivity left. I think what where the subjectivity will come in is uh, what to talk about, what to write about, not so much in how it's written, but uh, the choice of subjects. And I, I think these are the the key issues that that uh, cause a paper or a publication or a TV show to have a, a bias. And just to follow up on your earlier comment, I actually think partisans is pretty much a dirty word. Ideological is not. Uh, Fair enough. What, what bothers me is the uh, – I don't mind the, uh, the um, people having ideological or philosophical differences in airing them and, and – uh, this somehow the rooting for political parties as quote our team the way we root for sports teams I view as a very unhealthy trend in America uh, that seems to have also accelerated in the last oh I don't know ten twenty years um, I, I wish Americans were a little more um, agnostic about their their parties and a little more pugnacious about their philosophies, but that's a maybe a separate topic. No, I, I agree with that. I mean, one of the most, to me, dispiriting things, and, and I, I won't tick off all the examples, but suffice it to say we've seen it from both parties, or, or when you've seen some form of truly unethical behavior by by a, a relatively high official like a member of Congress, and and the the members of, of, the, of their parties' um, first reaction is, and sometimes only reaction is, um, it's more important to um, support this person than to make some sort of ethical decision about what they did. Yeah, and and the and the the rank and file down the line. I understand why they do it. That's their that's their tribe. But for the rest of us, I wish we identified our tribes a little differently. It just doesn't seem like a productive thing. I agree with that. The only thing I'd say is I think the people who who exhibit this sort of behavior uh, that you and I are talking about are louder than they are numerous. This is true. This is true. The, uh, you know, the one thing, just to come back to your point about objectivity and, and choice of subject, which I think is a really good point. I mean, choice of subject obviously is subjective, and um, and 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 you know, we're never going to get away from that, right? We are a product of um, of our of our readers and of our home city and of all sorts of things, and that's going to dictate some of the subjects we write about. My hope is that we can do it in in a way that even if the mix of subject isn't what everyone would choose, we can do it in a sufficiently um, respectful and interesting and and objective way as to to make people feel like we're doing it in a smart way. The thing that I think is really the tough issue is we have to move away from this basic dry report. 
literally what our customers want, right? Right. If we Doesn't went, sell that dry we, stuff. We went back to the 1940 New York Times. Our circulation would plummet, and as it should, it, it's just it wouldn't be as in keeping with the times. So lowercase t times. So yeah. we we need to do more of this analysis, and we need to do more of this um, putting things in perspective. But there's no question that when you do that, um, you you get closer to some of the the things that people feel are biased, and and there's sort of there's often no escaping making some calls. I mean, to me, for example, if you look at climate change, climate change is now at the point in which your coverage should not be including equal parts uh, quotes from people who think it's happening and people who think it isn't. However, there are other issues in which you should be doing that, and and making those calls makes you a good newspaper. It makes you an intelligent newspaper. On the other hand, you're not always going to get them right, and that's tricky. I didn't. I didn't hear quite what you said about the global warming. You said uh, you shouldn't. What was your well, summary it's, it's, of the it's, balance um, there? It's, you know, uh, I, I think David Ignatius in the Washington Post had a, had a nice way of summarizing it in a recent column. He said this is no longer a call both sides for comment issue. Yes, there are some questions about some of the details about things. This is this is science and this is projections, and, and we're not going to know all the answers rounded off uh, to, to to a decimal place by any means. But the question of whether climate change is happening and whether humans are a primary cause of it is scientifically a settled debate, and we would be not doing our jobs as journalists if every time we wrote about it we quoted someone who said climate change is happening and then quoted someone else who said it's not happening. I have to disagree with you there, uh, as in the following sense, uh, you know there was a there was a column by Ellen Goodman uh, a little while back where she compared uh, global warming deniers to Holocaust deniers, and she said they're exactly the same because they're both they're both ignoring the truth. Um, the difference, though, is that one is a, a truth about what has happened, and one is a can't be a truth about what will happen. What will happen is fundamentally different from what has happened. So it's to you know we we have theories about past climate, uh some quite reliable, some less so. We have forecasts about what's going to happen and there's a range of confidence around this forecast. So I I think it's um where I disagree with you is I agree with you you don't need balanced coverage. You shouldn't say Devote half an article to to skepticism and half to the to this to the consensus, but it seems to me that to ignore the skeptics, unless they're all cranks, right? If you write a piece on the if you write a piece on the moon launch and, and man walking on the moon, you certainly don't need to put into every story about man walking on the moon that there are people who think it was staged on a Hollywood sound set, soundstage and that and uh, and, and videoed to, to fool the American people. But there are serious scientists, not clowns, who are skeptical. Now, I don't think they deserve half the coverage, but surely they should be mentioned from time to time. Yeah, I mean, I think I think they should be mentioned from time to time. I mean, if you if, if you were to try to attempt some sort of scientific analysis of the studies of global warming and and who says that it's not actually happening or that humans aren't actually the cause and to put a percentage on that, I mean, I, I think the percentage would be so low that you, you would be mentioning them briefly in the occasional article, which is, my guess, is roughly what we're doing. Um, I wouldn't compare it to Holocaust deniers for a number of reasons. Um, 
But I don't think it's that far from the people who said the Earth was flat when we didn't yet have the complete evidence that it was round. Um, and that's a little bit of an unfair analogy because uh, climate change is a much less binary situation than whether the Earth is flat or yeah. whether it's round. But if it, it sort of depends what your question is. If the question is, has the Earth gotten warmer? Um, and are humans overwhelmingly uh, a, a do appear to be a main cause of that, then to me that falls into the flat Earth, round Earth uh, category. And what's going to happen for me here falls into the really unknown, uncertain, um, interesting scientific debate category. Yeah, and then, and, you know, for, I, I'm only reacting to that mainly as a, a, I don't know, a philosopher of science, which I had I don't wear very often. Because uh, I'm not really entitled to wear it, but but the you know for, as an economist, the issue that comes to the forefront for me is the issue of what are we going to do about it. If we accept the idea that this is a settled issue and that there is global warming, it is caused by humans. I think the tough question then is is what should we do about it? You wrote a very interesting piece uh, about that conference uh, was recently held on it uh, at, uh, at Yale, correct? Yes. Um... There's uh, Nicholas Stern, this English economist, wrote this big report on the economics of climate change, and a lot of American economists have really taken issue with his report. That's actually a really interesting example of what we're talking about. The economists who take an issue with his report don't question that the Earth is getting warmer. They don't question that humans are the main cause, and they don't question that the potential consequences of that can be very bad. They consider that settled science. Um, what they do question is some of um, Nicholas Stern's economic calculations, and they do uh, they do question how quickly um, we should be ramping up really serious energy taxes or cap and trade programs. Um, but it's sort of their debate is is how much and how fast, not whether. Sure. Uh, well, let's move on to economists generally, because you write about you write about economics, and you also write about economists, um, which are Related, but not the same thing. Uh, put on your anthropology hat and talk about the tribe of people called economists. What's your impression of of these strange people as, uh, from your field work observing them? Well, I think obviously I like them. I mean, I think um, anyone who who were to read my articles would know that um, that I'm quite taken with economists' approach to problems, um, and I think um, that it's it's uh, often a really rigorous approach and it's it's often just the way to think about things and and yet um we don't think in that way often enough i mean how'd you come to that interest that's a really good question i mean I, most people don't fall prey to it uh to that <laughs> to that disease they they manage to spend a healthy life immune from the charms of economics do you know have any idea of why you um got into it the the I've always loved numbers. Um, I, I learned to read and I learned to do math both from the Boston Globe sports section in the late 1970s. And um, and math was always my favorite subject in school, and I majored in it in college. And, um, and it quickly got sufficiently esoteric that I didn't like it and I wasn't good at it. But I, I still just love numbers. And um, my guess is that a lot of it comes comes from that, that um, numbers are somewhat unforgiving, um, and a lot of economics is based on numbers. And so when you like numbers and when you spend a lot of time with them, you become more open to arguments like cost-benefit analysis. Uh, you become more open to the argument of, yes, um, that would be a really nice thing, 
um, but um, uh, what's the alternative to it? Yeah. Um, or and, does it work actually in practice? Does that's right. Nice idea. The intentions are there, but what are the uh, what's the outcome? That's right. What are the real effects of it? Um, uh, and um, and so I, I've just become really taken with with notions of incentives and um, opportunity costs and unintended consequences. And I mean, in in a way, I think my my first interest in it came from an interest in efficiency, which mm-hmm. probably comes from a sort of basic impatience that I have mm-hmm. that um, that I'm working on. <laughs> but um, but you know, I hate being in the longest toll line. Just hate it. Sure. Um, and um, I'm sure I end up wasting time trying to move to a different supermarket line rather than just standing pat and relaxing and and you know thinking about something else. But but when you start to think about efficiency, you start to think about well, why is it that one thing is more efficient than another? And then you start to think about incentives, and then you quickly um, can become quite taken with with economic notions. And I also think that. Um, that it's really been a wonderful decade or so for economics. I mean, I, I remember saying to someone um, at one of the AEA annual economic conferences that I was really just stunned by how many interesting papers were being presented there. And and this person's response was, and this person was an economist, was, well, you should have been here 20 years ago and you wouldn't have said the same thing. Uh, and it's clear that, to me at least, and, and my long-term perspective isn't perfect by any means, um, but it's clear to me that there's been a real flowering of, of of interesting ideas and interesting approaches to problems in the field. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I hope they turn out to be as fruitful as they appear to be. I think the challenge is there's a certain uh, inevitable faddishness in all um, academic disciplines, and certain fads run their course. People need new things to write about and get journal articles out of, so they they turn to new new areas. Uh, sometimes for novelty's sake alone, and sometimes out of genuine intellectual interest. And I think the trick is is separating those two. But I want to ask you about a, a question coming back to this issue of ideology and bias that we talked about in journalists. Let's talk about it in economists. Economists have ideologies and, and biases. And in a recent column at the Library of Economics and Liberty, my colleague Dan Klein argued that economists should embrace this. They should admit their ideologies. They should uh, They should be open about them. Uh, we like to pretend, I think, as some journalists like to pretend, that we're bias-free, value-free. Right. We just we just do science. We're just we're just social scientists. Right. When in fact, most of us have some sort of philosophical uh, or ideological outlook that is intermingling with our work. What's your reaction to that? It's interesting because in in the in, in the language of newspapers, he's arguing for the European model rather than the American model. Right. That's right. European newspapers are much. Um, more ideological, much more. Um, they, they acknowledge that, and, and then they are, in fact, then more ideological. Um, I, I would probably argue for something in between. Meaning, I, I think that the direction of his argument is right, but my guess is I would disagree with the magnitude. Um, I, I, I think that the two there are two big weaknesses with with a lot of economic research right now, and I think that's one of them. Um, I, I think that economists do end up with huge number of important insights about policy. And I think some economists are quite comfortable making the leap from um, diagnosing a problem to trying to treat it. Um, I mean, 
the classic example has to be Milton Friedman, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he he didn't um, he didn't simply say, "I'm a researcher. I'm not going to do anything else besides that." And and you see all sorts of examples of it t- to this day. I mean, obviously, um, you see people in in government who who are trying to put their academic research uh, into practice. Ben Bernanke. Um, up in Massachusetts, John Gruber at MIT has, has played a role in the, in Governor Romney and the Democratic legislature's health care plan up there. And I think those things are incredibly important, and I think not enough economists are willing to wade in a little bit, because the downside absolutely is that you somehow come to be seen as someone with an agenda and a bias. Um, the upside is that you make the world a better place, and to me, uh, that's that's worth the trade-off if you're careful, if you admit what you do know and what you don't know, if you admit that designing policy prescriptions is is by definition um, less uh, more uncertain than doing some research. Um, but you really try to use the very good research that's been done to make policy and decisions done in a better way. The, the second of the two weaknesses I just alluded to is I think economists really should should get out a little more. I think that they should should spend more time talking to people in other disciplines. And I know economists often view people as, in other disciplines as unrigorous, and they think their math isn't serious. And and you know I think a lot of times that criticism uh, has has a real ring of truth to it. But on the other hand, as David Collender at Middlebury says, sometimes economists are too clever for their own sake. And to me, if economists could bring some of their rigor and some of their math. Um, to, to the table, and people from other disciplines could bring some of the the, the background, the history of the research, and, and sometimes some of the more human, real-world side. My guess is we'd be better off. Yeah, well, I think you're talking about a particular flavor of economist, um, which I you know I'd agree with you. I think the the so-called theorist side has a lot of uh, intellectual arrogance that's not particularly well deserved, and looking down and snubbing the the rest of the the rest of the academic world outside of the sciences at least. And I think actually there's been an incredible growth in interdisciplinary work in economics, which I think is a good thing. But what I thought you were going to say is that we ought to get out more and talk to real human beings, not just our sociologists and psychologist colleagues down the hall, but talk to real folks rather than X's and Y's and, and I's and J's. Talking, I, I wish economists did more case studies, got their hands dirtier. We do some of that here at George Mason. We, we do a lot of increasingly cultural work, which I think is a, a wonderful um, needed uh, addition to economics, but there's still not much of it getting done around the country, and I think that's an area of potential growth. And you know what? That's what I should have said. I mean, the, the reason I was <laughs> suggesting economists spend more time with, with sociologists and psychologists and epidemiologists is because those people often do spend more time talking Fair to, enough. to people. And so to some extent, what you're saying is, well, what, why, why use a middleman? And, and I think sometimes that's exactly right. It's a really hard problem. I mean, it's, it's, it's a hard problem, too, for, for journalists, which is, you know, on the one hand, you don't just want to be dealing with, with numbers. On the other hand, um, you don't want to just really, tell anecdotes. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's really easy to be to be swayed by the two. And I, I do think that the, the work um, that is not only the most rigorous but also the most persuasive figures out how to find a balance between these two, in which you really make sure that you stay faithful to um, to what is rigorous research, but that you also get at some of the nuances that you can only get at by telling stories of institutions or people. Yeah, and I think that's the art of being a great economist. I, I think it's an illusion that we're we're like a uh, you know physicist. We just look at people. Um, 
inevitably we're going to be uh, mixing uh, the data and the story, and they don't they're not per- always totally clean in, in what in what they say. Uh, and there's an art in in relaxing the assumptions that that are the the quote most rigorous, but the most rigorous models obviously are a little sterile. So you've you've got to bring in some real world stuff. Um, just the way it is. Uh, we're getting low on time. I, I want to turn to a recent column you did that I found fascinating uh, on on heart attacks in uh, American hospitals and how they're treated. In a recent column, you you wrote about the time it takes from basically walking into the emergency room to getting your arteries cleared out. Is that the relevant? Is that the relevant issue? That's right. In medicine, it's called door to balloon time. So door to balloon time. It's it's the time from when you walk in the door to the time when they stick a balloon in one of your cardiac arteries um, if you're having a heart attack in order to get the blood flowing again. And the key is, the ideal is under two quick as possible, obviously. But but two hours seems to be the 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 time we want to get within. Correct? That's right. Some people now think ninety minutes should be the standard, but um, but that's. We don't need to get lost in that thicket. You know, okay. ninety minutes or two hours; those and, are both good standards. And we'll put a link up to this to the story, of course, and, and the graphic that you have with it that I found so interesting. But the national average is is sixty seven percent of patients get uh, treated within that two hour limit. Correct? correct. But many hospitals do dramatically better than that, and tragically, many do dramatically worse. So, tell us what you found at. Uh, you have a nice anecdote at the beginning of it, along with the, the data that, that tell the fuller story. The anecdote is a guy who shows up at uh, UCSF, University of California, San Francisco Hospital. Is that, is that the right? That hospital? is correct. And tell, what happened to that guy? So he, this is two, this was uh, the summer of '05, and, and he woke up with pain. And he didn't understand it was a heart attack, but it was sufficiently bad that he, uh, his wife said, I'll drop you off at the hospital, and he was going to skip a family outing with their two girls. He figured he'd pull the muscle in his shoulder, and as they're driving there, the, the pain shoots into his arm, and he starts sweating, and he turns to his wife and says quietly, because his four- and five-year-old daughters are in the back, I'm having a heart attack. And um, uh, she drops him, well, she doesn't drop him off. She was going to drop him off at the emergency room when they thought it was a pulled muscle. The, the, they go to the emergency room together. Um, and they go to UCSF rather than their normal hospital because it was absolutely the closest one. And he gets whisked through the process. And, and it's a great hospital. It's, it's a, a great hospital, right? I mean, it's, I mean, U.S. News, uh, I don't love their ranking methodology, but it's, you know, fourth-ranked hospital. They've had three Nobel Prize winners in the last 20 years. You know, UCSF is as good as it gets. And he gets whisked through the process, and he, and the, and he gets the, his arteries opened up in, I think, 83 minutes. Um, but the reason I told the story is that um, about five years ago, UCSF was, was really not very good at this. Um, their average door-to-balloon time was like three hours. And w- what happened was they just assumed they were good at it. As, as one of the doctors I quoted, a really thoughtful guy named Bob Walker, said, uh, we figured we're UCSF, we're smart, we're good at this, we must be. And then they looked at the data, and they weren't that good at it. <laughs> five years ago, what were they at? Uh, five years ago, their average was around three hours. I don't have their percentage from five years ago because that's not how it was reported at the right. time. Um, but if their average is around three hours, I, I mean, I don't think it's ridiculous to guess that, uh, I don't know, less than half of people were, sure. were were getting in under two hours, maybe about half. Maybe that's a good guess. Right, because there might be some long delays that pulled up the average, but it's, it wasn't a good situation. And then, But here's what one of the things, a lot of things intriguing about the story and this is a great example of um, a lot of interesting economics. 
they woke up one day and said, you know, maybe we're not as good as we thought. But that isn't literally what happened. Why did they suddenly focus on this? You think that'd be, you think, hey, saving lives. This is, right. this is not like, you know, we wish the decor were a little up to date, or wish the the, the the color of the paint was more soothing to the patients, or I wish the forms were easier to fill out, or the ballpoint pens were easier to write with. This is life and death. That's right. And one day they decided, hey, I wonder if we could do this better. But there was something that pushed them. What that's was right. it? That's right, and that that's the whole point. It was the threat of public disclosure. So they knew that um, the Joint Commission, which is a hospital regulatory body, accreditation body, uh, and Medicare were eventually going to start releasing this data to the public. The percent- how long it takes. And the percentage of people under two hours. The percentage of people long? under two hours is what's released publicly. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I have some of the UCSF average data, but the public stuff that's released is, is the percentage. And so they knew this was going to happen. So, so they knew that other people were going to see this data, and they then got serious about it. And... Um, I quote one of a hospital executive, a nurse who's who's the director of performance improvement, I think, who said in a meeting to people because UCSF was a was doing better than the national average during this point, during this time, even when they were bad. And she said during the meeting, "Look, this is okay, but is this what you would want if your dad came in here?" Yeah, it's kind and, of overwhelmingly true. <laughs> and 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 the point is that they were afraid of. Looking bad, yeah. and we all are afraid of looking sure. bad. And so, what they did was they got really serious about dealing with this. And they're not perfect now; they're now up to seventy-seven percent of people under two hours. I don't think you could ever get to a hundred because, um, in the in the case that I described, you, they, it was obviously a heart attack. Sometimes it's not obviously yeah, a heart now attack. Yeah, now this is a blunt measure. Obviously, there there are hundreds of other factors that are going to come in. And it, that would decide, you're trying to measure quote good care. That's right. This is a very blunt measure, but a pretty pretty informative measure of whether it's good care or not in Absolutely. most cases. Absolutely. Yeah, you... um, and so, you know, they got really serious about it, and a lot of it was not um, high-level science. A lot of it was blocking and tackling. You know, it was, it was the, 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 one of the top guys who actually puts in these balloons, or, or now stents, um, realized that um, he needed to carry a second pager. Uh, one was for quote-unquote emergencies, but which in fact ended up getting used for just about anything. Correct. And another was a pager that would only go off when, when someone was having a heart attack. So when that pager went off, it wasn't, oh, you know, someone has a question for me about where the smocks are. Yeah, exactly. It was, I need to get to the hospital now. Um, and so they did, you know, various um, quality management type stuff, and, and they got their, their average down to about 90 minutes. Very quickly, actually. Um, sure, because there was probably, as you say, a bunch of logistical things about how to, the flow of information, where you put the people, where the even where the equipment was. There probably was a whole bunch of simple, low-lying, low-hanging fruit they could do right away. That's right. I, I think there's also another really important thing, and I didn't have room to get into this in, in the piece, but you know, these, as you and I were just alluding to, these measures aren't perfect, right? And and sometimes people end up, often people end up managing to the measures. I mean, you sure. could imagine a hospital opening someone's artery even if they weren't sure they were having a heart attack right. because they wanted to make sure they were doing fine. Right. And and the more sophisticated, this is a process measure, right? It's not actually measuring how many people survive. It's simply measuring what the hospital do does. The more sophisticated measures are outcome measures. Right. Um, now, outcome measures have all kinds of problems, right? You have to adjust for the, the incoming population. Oh, the population, sure. So, 
So there are all sorts of ways in which this is difficult. And a lot of times when measures like this come up, what you hear, and this isn't just in healthcare, you hear it in education from teachers and from school administrators, you hear it in all sorts of realms. What you hear is, this is really hard. It's hard to adjust for the mix of, of the incoming people. It's hard to make sure that we don't create bad incentives. It's hard for this and it's hard for that. And all those things are fair points. But they're often excuses for not doing it at all. They're often excuses for avoiding accountability. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important to separate the question of how do we do this in the best possible way, um, which are, those are really difficult questions and, and we need to take them seriously, from the, oh, you know what, um, we're just going to do really well even if no one's looking over our shoulder because we're professionals. And right. that's not true. No, because the incentives matter. I, the reason I, one of the reasons I like this story is it harkens back to the uh, – the issue you mentioned in your in your opening remarks uh, when you were talking about your experience as a journalist, you and I first met when I was at a business school at Washington, business school at Washington University in St. Louis, and we were part of this bizarre, surreal rankings uh, experience that you were involved in at, at Business Week. And I think you could say the same thing about the uh, Business Week or other rankings that happen of business schools. They're horribly flawed. There's methodological problems. They cause uh, MBA programs to play to the test, to try to make the measure look good as opposed to improving education. All those things are true. But the fact is the transparency had a transforming and extraordinary impact on education in, in MBA programs in America, just as this role of information had a, had a a role in what's, I think, a more important problem of getting people, getting their arteries cleaned out. And it must be interesting for you to see that in both cases, because it's it the same is. phenomenon. It is. And that's, you know, the Business Week rankings, which which I helped carry out a couple times, but I don't get any of the credit for coming up with the idea behind them, or any of the blame, depending on your view. <laughs> um, they're based very heavily on a survey of graduating MBA students and on recruiters. So they're meant on, in some ba on some basic level to be a customer satisfaction right. survey. And, and um, sort of leaving them aside for a second, because I can't be objective about them, one of the things that, that I find so disappointing about the U.S. news rankings of, all, of colleges, of graduate programs, of all sorts of things, is they don't have any overarching philosophy. They're just sort of a combination of numbers that right. are put into a formula. And they're not actually in any way trying to get at what students learn or how satisfied students are with the education they got. And so to me, that's why um, I actually, although I'm, I'm a big believer in rankings and, and in accountability and all those things, I'm not a very big fan of the U.S. News rankings because I, I don't actually see how they end up making education that much better other than they've done a pretty good job at forcing colleges to release more data. Yeah, which is good in and of itself, but it the, but it's not as good as as a focused approach. And of course, a focused approach has to have a have a philosophy behind it. Inevitably, inevitably involves making tough choices about about what you think or what one might think is contributing to education. But in this case of, of medical care, it's pretty open and shut uh, that it's good to get your arteries open sooner than later. Um, although, of course, there is this issue as you point out of incentives could start to work the other way, uh, but. As a mistake to make, I think we're making the right mistake. Um, one other thought on this that I thought was interesting, and I'd love your thoughts on this as uh, someone who knows more about it than I do. Uh, you walk into – you're in America. You're in a major city, any major city, uh, and you have a, that shooting pain up your chest. 
uh, or up your shoulder or your arm that the, the person you were talking about had, and you drive to the nearest hospital. What happens to you may vary uh, by time because it may be poorly run. You may get bad luck. It may be crowded that day. Uh, the person in charge might not be as good as another person who might be in charge. That is a whole. There's a lot of random things that are going to happen that are going to affect whether you you're in there quickly or, or not so quickly. But the medical treatment you receive across all these hospitals, the best to the worst, is pretty uniform, I think. And I'd like your reaction to that. Is that true? What do you mean by uniform? Uh, you're going to get a balloon. Uh, okay. You're not going to get somebody who says, you know, just. And the reason I've been thinking about this, I, I, I stumbled on an article in the Times about Eisenhower's heart attack in 1955. And Eisenhower in 1955 has a heart attack, and he ends up uh, uh, getting some morphine for it. He was probably mistreated, uh, some people say. But he gets some morphine, and then you know, in the morning he goes in, and it was in the middle of the night. He goes in in the morning, and he gets a, I think eventually gets an electrocardiogram, which was the state of the art diagnostic at the time. Of course, they didn't have MRI or CT scan or anything else, and the range of drugs that were available were were much more limited. And he goes on a seven-week bed rest program, which he, you know, does survive. But the range of of treatment available to a doctor today for the average person is so remarkably better than it was for the president of the United States. Um, and my guess is, is that it almost doesn't matter which hospital you're in. It may matter for how quickly you get seen or how pleasant it, the experience it is. But if you have a heart attack in the United States, no matter who you are, you get your artery cleaned out, you get the drugs that that, that, that destroy the clot, and you get the, the balloon that, that cleans out the artery. I would, I think, half agree and half disagree. Go ahead. I would half agree in that um, the Eisenhower example is a really nice one because there is no question that um, not only at the average but probably at the you know 10th or 20th percentile, the treatment you would get, um, maybe at the first percentile, I don't know, the treatment you would get for a heart attack today is better than the treatment that Dwight Eisenhower got. For sure. And, and I mean, the, the, the advances in the quality of care we've had in this country are pretty stunning. Um, I mean, you know, think of something like childhood leukemia, which really just used to be a death sentence, and now most kids who have it survive. I mean, it's it's really about the best possible news you could imagine anywhere in society. Um, and it's instructive to go back and look uh, to the 1950s and 60s, as David Cutler, the Harvard healthcare economist, has done, and see these quotes from people who basically said, we appear to be at our max for longevity because right. we've solved the public health problem. And, nothing left, yeah. And there's nothing left. Well, in fact, there has been something left, and it's medicine. Um, and it's made an enormous difference. And so that's the part that I would agree with. And it's why uh, I've written some pieces saying that sometimes we worry too much about health costs. I mean, why is it better? It, when you go out and buy a car, we somehow think of it as you're investing in the economy. But when you go out and, and buy health care, we think that it's just a, a sap on your personal finances. Bizarre when, idea. Often it's an investment in, in your health, which is much more important than yeah. anything else. So that said, I think there is enormous variation. Yeah, where's health. the half you disagree with, David? That, the half I disagree <laughs> with is I think there's enormous variation. I mean, I really do, and I think that was part of the point of, of this piece I did on, on heart attack here. I think the room we have to bring up places that are substandard to some sort of minimally competent level is still enormous. We can still make a huge, huge difference in the healthcare system by by doing what we know how to do 
more effectively, more efficiently, more competently than we're now doing. Well, I agree with that, and I think one of the sub-themes of your piece, which I which I agree with, is that the focus on healthcare coverage uh, is uh, can sometimes drown out these much more important improvements we could make in uh, healthcare outcomes and healthcare processes. But I'm just um, trying to give you a hard time on the inequality issue. Uh, you know, a, a homeless person in America today who has a heart attack, I think, gets better treatment than, than Dwight Eisenhower did with a pretty high probability. I think that's probably right. And the, the second half I would add is that shouldn't be our standard, though, right? We should aim higher than that. We should recognize the enormous progress we've made. But we should also recognize that um, science is the hard part. It's, it's the part that requires inspiration and innovation. The putting these things in place actually isn't as hard as the figuring out how to fix a heart. And so given that we've done the hard stuff, let's finish the job. Uh, well, I half agree with that because I think the equally hard part is finding a way to finish the job that uh, that actually works. Uh, it, it's, the, um, it's the old, if we can put a man on the moon, surely we can make sure that, and you finish the sentence. Putting the man on the moon is the easy part. It, it's, a, it's the relentless application of engineering and science and and physics, the economics part, the incentives, the unintended consequences, I think, is the hard part. And uh, we're out of time, and I hope we can come back, you and I, and talk about the harder part uh, or the easy part on the inequality issue maybe down the road. That would be great. Thanks a lot. I've enjoyed this. My guest today has been David Leonhardt, who writes a economics and business column for The New York Times. Thanks for joining us, David. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <music>